Okay. Hopefully you've got that passage uh, open there in John uh, chapter 9. Not that we're going to be spending a great deal uh, of time looking at that, but I, I love that that passage, and I don't know if you can connect uh, with that man who had been born blind. I mean, what a dreadful thing uh, to have as, as your whole life having been blind. And then instead of everybody celebrating with this guy, he meets the frustrations of these religious leaders uh, simply because this was done, he was healed on the Sabbath. And they're more focused on that, completely missing the point of what God did. And I guess there was that element of them seeing, but were they really seeing clearly? Last week, we were thinking about uh, the man who was blind at Bethesda and that, and Jesus having spat in his eyes. And firstly, he could see uh, people that looked like trees wandering around. But then when Jesus laid his hands on him again, he saw everything clearly. A sense of someone being able to see but not see everything clearly, two levels. And we were thinking about that in the context of how clearly we see or otherwise. I'll give you an example of that in terms of when I got home today uh, for lunch. I'm usually the last to leave uh, the church here, so I've locked up. Eventually I uh, got, uh, got back home and conversation uh, went something uh, like, uh, like this. I was greeted with uh, the words, oh, this is really good. This melon is still absolutely fine, despite us having it here since Christmas Day. My response? What melon that's been here since Christmas Day? <laughs> now, the melon, I was then told, has been in the kitchen by the microwave that I probably use on a daily basis every day since Christmas Day. I said, well, it couldn't have been in front of the microwave since Christmas Day because I would have seen it. I then received one of those kind of blank expressions. I mean, one would almost be led to believe that if you're a man, you can't see something under your nose. Now, gentlemen, we know that that's far from the case, don't we? There was this, this melon. Of course, melons are not exactly very small, are they? And I should have been able to see it. I mean, it's bright yellow. It was a honeydew melon. It was big. It's yellow. I'd not seen it. Christmas Day is how many days ago? And so, in a spiritual sense, it may well be that we think we can see. But are we able to see everything clearly? And so, we're looking as a church this year at our theme for the year, 2020 Vision, Seeing God clearly, trusting that we would be able to do just that. What was the testimony of that man born blind? Well, he probably didn't have a great deal of theological understanding, but what he did know was this. Once I was blind, now I see. Don't worry if you haven't got any answers to all the questions that people ask you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a story to tell. And a part of that story is, I was once like this, but now I am like this through what God has done in our lives. As you'll see from that uh, reading that Chris read out, we've got all the back and forth with the, uh, with the man concerned about his blindness and how it happened and this, that and the other. But then Jesus goes on to talk about spiritual blindness. I wonder how we would gauge our sight Obviously, we have Sally with us, and Sally's got an appointment this week, which is really key, really important for Sally this week. Sally is losing her sight. Do pray for that. Sight is very precious, isn't it? 
And then if we lose it, we think, well, that's surely the, the end of the world. We want to be able to see. Spiritually, what about what we want to see in terms of God, in terms of Jesus, in terms of his plan or whatever it may well be uh, for our lives. Well, we may well want to see Jesus, but this was the response that poor Thomas got after he had doubted that Jesus had come back to life. All of his friends had seen that that had occurred in John chapter 20, but he hadn't been there. He was a bit frustrated. Didn't really believe it. Unless I have the opportunity, you may well remember the passage, to put my finger in the nail marks, then I'm not going to believe it. Unless I put my whole hand into his side. And that conjures up all sorts of unpleasant images, doesn't it? And then, of course, Jesus reveals himself to Thomas. Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hand in my side. We can sense the gulp of the red face and his falling to his knees as he then worships this Jesus, my Lord and my God. But this is the phrase that I want us to catch hold of. Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, you're only believing me now because you have seen me. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You're absolutely right, Gene, saying that verse with me. We are in that group, aren't we? We haven't had that opportunity to see Jesus in the same way that he walked on this earth. But we do have the opportunity for ourselves to be blessed. We need our eyes to be open to see this God, don't we? Only God is able to do this for ourselves, to see who Jesus is. When I look back to the time when I became a Christian, I thought it was all about my decision, what I did in terms of my response, my prayer, my this, that and the other. And the longer I've been a Christian, the the more I've realised over the years that it's all about God. God and his grace reaching out to me time and time and time and time again until there came that time when I then they could do nothing else because it was so clear that God was real and I had no other choice other than seeking to make a commitment to him. This is our God who still is in the business of revealing himself to us and who speaks to us. And primarily one of the ways that God does that is through his word. That is how you and I are going to have our, our sense of faith and belief. And that's what I want us to think about a little bit this evening. But when we think about God's word, we think about the Bible, why is it that we follow it? What is this book? Well, we looked at a few things this morning. I'm going to elaborate on some of those uh, things this evening. Some of us maybe have been Christians for so long, we don't really know why we believe in it at all. And if there's ever there any of those conversations where we get um, people that are somewhat cynical, uh, that kind of throw things at us, we're not really that sure why we follow it or believe it in the first place. So we're going to explore some of those things and hopefully uh, build our confidence up. The word the Bible literally means the library from the Greek word biblios. Uh, Most people feel that this was probably the first ever book. It's a combination all told of how many books together? 66, you're absolutely right. How many in the Old Testament? 39. Some of you are there this morning who didn't answer the question thinking, I can remember now. No good getting all smug. And 27 from the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament was written largely in Hebrew, some in Aramaic, and the New Testament in Greek. We're just going to look at the English version. Is that okay this evening? Good job, too, because I can't do anything else in any of the other language at all other than that word biblios, and you've already had that one. It was written over a period of 1,600 years, probably. That's over a long time. 
about itself. This is what John chapter 20, just after the bit uh, that we had, uh, we're thinking about that, that uh, illustration with Thomas. We read these words. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Nothing to do with church going, nothing to do with giving to charity, but by believing you may have life in his name. So when we think about seeing God clearly, that all starts with that decision that we make to believe. To believe and the capacity that we've got for that is obviously in response to what God is doing for us. The Bible shows us how to find God's forgiveness. Also how he wants to be involved in our lives, how it's best to live, how we should deal with the big issues of life and how we can be a part of serving him and indeed serving our world. But what about some of the stuff that gets uh, thrown at us? There's a whole variety of things that we may uh, hear from time to time. Well, this book is nothing but a book of myths. Have you ever heard that? One archaeologist, Mirabiro, said this word, these words. He said, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. One Jewish scholar called Nelson Gluick said, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single properly understood biblical statement. I was at a church in Christchurch last year. Uh, when we uh, we were away on uh, uh, Sunday off or annual leave, whatever it was, so we went to a church in Bournemouth, and they had uh, there uh, somebody who's one of the lecturers at Moreland's uh, Bible College, who was sharing an evening. He's got a passion for archaeology, and each year he spends two weeks uh, doing this excavation kind of uh, stuff. And he said every single year we come back with yet another tick against something that's discovered that is in line with what your Bible and mine says occurred or a place that existed. That does nothing other than build confidence that you and I are able to have in this book of faith, but actually both book of faith that is based on historicity. And that ought to build us a, a sense of confidence. Or what about science? Now, I, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so if any scientists that uh, have no faith have a little bit of a go at me, I feel a bit wobbly. My greatest scientific achievement is a CSE grade four, which was nothing really to brag about and certainly doesn't warrant half a celebration chocolate, let alone a whole one. <clears throat> but the Bible was not a science book. It was never written as a science book. It was written pre-science. We need science, though, but it offers no moral code and it doesn't answer the questions that we have about meaning, purpose or significance. That is not the place of science. There's something called Moore's Law in 1979, and those of you who are scientists may well know and be able to speak um, much more fluently about this than me. But it speaks basically of our own ability to be able to multiply knowledge exponentially as new facts or information are gathered, verified and analysed and then compared, then prior knowledge needs to then be in submission to that and re-evaluated. So when we discover, in other words, this, this was what we had believed to be true, but then science discovers, in actual fact, that's not true, this is, and we can test that and evaluate that, 
and you take that and you take that and you take that on, you think, well, over the years, surely sooner rather than later, something is going to be proved wrong here. No, not once. Prior knowledge, yes, it must always be then re-evaluated, but the Bible's remained okay, despite that scientific test that's put in. That ought to give us confidence as well. What about all the contradictions? Uh, That may well be something uh, that you get targeted uh, with. I mean, it's always a good response to say, well, can you highlight one? (laughs) Because it's a phrase that we we hear that's picked up, that's banded about without uh, usually anybody quoting one at all. If they do quote anything, usually I've discovered the most common um, apparent contradiction is this, uh, where uh, we read it back in the Old Testament about an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, where in the New Testament Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Oh, there you go, contradiction. (gasps) No. It's important that we look at the context that those two statements occur in. The former of that eye for an eye was written to set a limit to the retaliation that used to go on with Noah Bangs back in the day. So in other words, if someone actually, uh, let's pick on Michael here as he's uh, big beefy Michael here. If Michael was to steal my pencil, I may well think, well, I'm going to steal two of yours. And then Michael may think, well, I'm not going to like that. I'm going to go and hit him over the head. And I may well think, well, I'm going to hit you twice over the head. And it goes back and forth, back and forth and escalating and escalating. God's word came in to say, hang on, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. There needs to be a sense of equality. Jesus in the New Testament is saying grace allows us to go one step further than that. Turn the other cheek. There's no contradiction at all when you look at those two statements and understand what Jesus was saying. Because we then have the power of forgiveness. Wow. But it would have changed over the years is another thing that sometimes people say about God's word. Surely from when these manuscripts were first uh, written, nowadays what we have must surely be very different from what we had back then. And we we threw out a a, a quote from about the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1947 uh, that were a thousand years, dated a thousand years further back than any other manuscripts that that we had. And when the two were compared with what was back in in the day in 1947, no doctrinal differences whatsoever. The cynics thought, oh, this is going to be the stuff coming to the fore. But no, we can indeed trust God's word. One previous US statement, statesman Daniel Weber said this, the Bible is a book of faith. If we had sufficient evidence to refute every sceptic's misgivings, we would have no need for faith. This is not the way that God has chosen. Now, just want to touch on a little bit of biographical evidence. Now, I know some of you at this point are thinking, oh, this is going to be really riveting and interesting. Others of you think, this is not my thing at all. If you can grasp hold of this, it will encourage you in your faith. It will encourage you to have confidence when you come to God's word. Let me give you an example. Anybody believe that Julius Caesar ever existed? It's not a trick question. Okay, look at all the hands that went up. Now, we we were taught that. You were probably taught that as I was uh, at school. Now, in terms of uh, Caesar and some of the works of Caesar and when they were written, that was around about 100 to 40 BC. 
Are, are you with me so far? Because if you're not, then you're going to be in trouble in two minutes' time. Okay, you're all with me so far. That's great. However, the earliest copy that we have is dated 900 AD. And you then have uh, what experts uh, that are, are evaluating this kind of stuff call a time span of a thousand years. From when the stuff was originally written to the earliest copy. Now, obviously, the, the closer together and the lower that figure in terms of time span, the more confidence we're able to have in any historical writing. Yeah? How many copies have we got, for example, of uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars? Any idea? Ten. Ten. We've got about ten. Okay? But that's still okay. Ten copies of that. Earliest copy, 900 AD, and you all put your hands up. Yes, he really existed. Yes, yes, yes. I've got no problem with that. But just hold that thought for a moment, because that's the sort of stuff that gets taught as definite truth that occurred. You've then got the works of Homer. I don't think he was a part of the Simpson family. I don't think it's going <laughs> way back there. Uh, but the works of Homer, when that was written, goes way back to 900 BC. That's a lot, lot further uh, before but the earliest copy we've got is of his works from 400 BC. So that the time span is only 500 years. So even more confidence that we ought to be able to have in the works of Homer. Particularly when we mention that the number of copies that we've got are 643. Can you see where this is going? And I'm not advocating that you're a betting person. But you think, well, with that amount of evidence, that sounds a lot more likely to actually feel confident that that was genuine and that was real, particularly because of the, only the 500-year time span. Now, let's just think of the New Testament only. The New Testament only. Well, that was written between 400... Four, not 400 at all, I can't read me. Between 40 and 100 AD. The earliest copies that we have of manuscripts are dated 125 AD. Between 100 and 125, my maths would suggest, is a time span of just 25 years. A whole host of people would have still been around when this stuff was then kind of written out to be able to validate whether or not that occurred. Of course it occurred. Well, unless we've only maybe got one manuscript. Any idea how many we've got? We have got more than 24,000 manuscripts. When we look at this kind of stuff on an alpha course, and Chris will, re will remember this, I, I use red ribbon to illustrate the difference. Alpha is a course for, particularly for people that are exploring whether or not there's any um, confidence that we can have on what the Bible teaches and whether or not Christianity's got anything to say. And you, you take this one centimetre piece of ribbon of the works of Caesar... But in terms of the, work, the, the manuscripts that we've got of the New Testament, I go round and round the room, wrapping everybody up in this red ribbon, because it goes on and on and on. We have every reason to be confident in what God's word says. And all that God is saying to us is, look, you've got it all there. Trust me. Believe this word. When we make that decision, that is going to enable us to see him more clearly. But we've still got that choice, haven't we? So in addition to all that uh, available evidence, as Christians, we believe that we can trust God's word. I'm going to mention four reasons. 
Here's reason number one. Firstly, it survived. How many countries have tried to burn it, ban it, do away with it, or what have you? And yet it continues to flourish and in many countries continues to be the bestseller world of, of, across the world year after year. One uh, French monarch ordered the persecution of, when he ordered the persecution of Christians, he was told this, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. <laughs> I think that's a, a captured uh, the essence of that perfectly. The philosopher Voltaire claims that Christianity would be swept from existence. But within 50 years of his death, in 1778, the Geneva Bible Society used his press and his house to produce stacks of Bibles. What about an irony in that truth? Christianity is going to end, he says. That's 300 odd years ago. He was wrong. People are still becoming Christians across the globe every single day in their thousands because God is speaking to people through his word. We can have confidence in it, but we still need to make a choice to believe it. It has survived. God's word is unique, written over 40 generations by more than 40 authors in different places, in prison, on a hilltop, through war, in a a desert, on journeys at different times, sometimes at war, sometimes at peace, during different moods. Sometimes people wrote when they were filled with joy, other times when people were filled with despair. On different continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, three languages, addressing hundreds of controversial topics. Yet the writers all speak with a harmony, continuity and authority from Genesis right the way through to Revelation. We couldn't come up with this book by ourselves and not be have our own work ripped to shreds if we were trying to do this ourselves, could we? It is an incredibly unique book. Why? Because it is God's word. Not just black and white writing written on a page for us to have nice, cosy thoughts about. It's his living word. It's relevant. We don't. Every now and then you may well hear a phrase, we need to... To make the Bible relevant. No, we, we don't need to do that because it is relevant for every nation, every people group ever. We need to apply God's living word into a changing world. Yes, that's slightly different. We can apply God's word obviously to ourselves as well. And that's something that we need to seek to do. And lastly, and probably most importantly, it changes lives, doesn't it? God's word changes lives. I was speaking uh, to somebody uh, yesterday. We had a, a churches together uh, prayer time and all the churches were involved and sharing their different uh, ways of praying. And that was uh, quite um, an eye opener to me, all these different means of praying, some of which I'd never heard of or experienced before, but it was all good. It's a great sense of unity uh, together. And somebody was sharing uh, there in terms of their own frustration about trying to be faithful to God's word and proclaim his word and getting down that then nobody was responding. And just when they got to thinking, oh, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. Boom, somebody over Christmas gave their life to Jesus Christ in response to what they said was a very, very short and simple message from God's word. Wonderful. God's word changes lives. And if you want proof of that, just put your hand up if God's word has ever spoken into your life. Yeah? Now, just seeing the sea of hands 
remember that picture because there'll be times when maybe that we doubt whether or not he's still the God who's able to do that. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves, yes he is. And as Chris was praying, it's the same yesterday, today and forever. So when we're thinking about being a part of this church, the first place that we start with people that are new to us or wanting to join up with us, we want to know about their spiritual journey and ask them, well, what do you believe? Particularly, what do you believe about this book and the central character, the person of Jesus Christ? Very briefly, I want to share four things that in, in the essence uh, of the gospel, really, uh, I think these, these four things are that we would ha- hold dear. Firstly, we would believe that God made the world. That's not a difficult thing for us to believe, being a Bible-believing church here, because no matter how far back you go, the first four words that you read in the Word of God are what? The first four words. In the beginning, God. You may well have conversations with people from time to time, uh, no matter what, where that conversation is going, they'll say their bit and you'll say, well, where did that come from? And then they'll talk maybe about the Big Bang and you'll say, well, where did the Big Bang come from? And you go back and back and back and eventually you go back to God. And of course, they will probably try and be quite clever and say, well, where did God come from then? We can't factually prove anything other than God's word starts with, in the beginning, God. And as one radio interview went, where a Christian was being mocked, are you trying to tell me that you believe that there was a God who made everything out of nothing? And the Christian just paused and then responded with these words, I'd rather believe in a creator God who made everything out of nothing than believe that nothing made everything out of nothing. I'd love to say that that was me that responded like that, but I'm afraid it wasn't. What a great response. And there was then silence from the other person. You can't go any further back than that. God made the world, the universe, and everything in it. Yes, it was perfect. Yes, it was great. And as a part of God's love towards us, he gave us that sense of free will. But in response to that, there were wrong choices. And sadly, that had disastrous consequences. We know when God's word is not followed, things go wrong. Wrong needs to be to be punished, and there was that barrier called sin uh, between ourselves and our Creator. God wanted to remove that barrier, but you couldn't just do away with that barrier because God is a just God, and anyone who is just knows that wrong needs to be punished that's why we have a law in the land and unless we get caught speeding we think generally speaking that the law is good that lawbreakers should be punished for god to be a just god wrong had to be punished but this god is also a forgiving god who is desperately eager to forgive us his justice and his love that came together with someone's arms outstretched. His name was Jesus, and he gave his life for you and for me. That is central to what the Bible is all about. He is the main character. The Old Testament points forward to him. 
The New Testament speaks about him and then looks back to what he did and why as we then evaluate the growth and development of the church from there on in and then find ourselves at this time and season thinking of what's our response to that. God is desperately eager for that barrier to be removed. He came up with that solution, didn't he? Of Jesus being willing to be punished for all the wrong of mankind. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world not of good people but everybody the world all-inclusive that was the extent to what jesus did but not that everybody would then choose to accept that we don't believe in universalism here only those who then accept and place their trust in what jesus did is what the bible teaches about those who will be forgiven So God came up with that solution. Here's three verses that we mentioned this morning that are worthwhile uh, to repeat. Romans chapter 10 verse 9, where Paul said to the church there, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be, not you might be or on a good day or, you know, if you hedge your bets, you will be saved. Confession. That speaking out, Jesus being Lord, and the faith, the believing that this Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. We hold that and we put that alongside uh, the next verse that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. The forgiveness that was possible in Jesus. Why? Because salvation is found in no one else. No one else. And at this point, We can therefore say, well, therefore, there is only one way to be saved. There are two ways to be saved. And I say that just because I like to ruffle up some feathers of some deep-rooted evangelicals. You could be saved if you're perfect or if you're forgiven. Now, some of you are breathing a sigh of relief, aren't you, that I've not suddenly turned heretical. Salvation is found in no one else because all have sinned, God's word says. And just as brilliant as it was that I'm in the world bit that this Lamb of God came for, I'm also in the all bit of who had sinned. And so are you. Sorry about that. Even great people like Michael that we were having that back and forth uh, uh, earlier. We need a saviour. But salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. When Peter preached his first sermon, this unschooled fisherman, as God's spirit in Acts chapter 2 had so come upon him and that other uh, mixed match group of people. And he proclaimed uh, this Jesus as people were uh, kind of not understanding what was going on. Or some were mocking, some were thinking, well, they've had too much to drink. Peter was saying, oh, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, guys. We're not that bad as fishermen. And then he started from there into his message and headed to make his point about Jesus and told them what they had done with crucifying this Jesus. They were convicted, pierced to the heart, cut to the heart, may well be the translation that you've got. Well, what shall we do then? They replied. And Peter said these words, Repent and be baptised, every single one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of your sins. Again, helpful words. The importance of repentance, that turning around, starting afresh. The importance of baptism, the outward sign of an inward faith. It's all there that goes hand in hand. But also it's with the believing element, isn't it? That's central right the way through scripture. And of course, lastly, we have a choice. As we wrap up the gospel in a nutshell about what it is that we believe here, about how we might have that opportunity to see God clearly, it starts with our believing. But we have that choice. I haven't got to make that choice yet. We were going around with the chocolate tin. Sometimes people say, oh no, I'd rather not have a chocolate. And I'm kind of miming back to them, well, give it to me then. (laughs) When a chocolate is offered, the person that it's offered to has a choice whether they receive it or whether they don't. I won't pick on Michael again. I've already picked on Michael. I'll pick on David over there. If I was to offer David a chocolate and David said, no, Roger, I'm watching my weight after Christmas or whatever else he may well say, so I don't then give him one. If then David gets upset because he didn't really mean that, he wanted a chocolate, he just wanted me to ask him again, it's not my fault that I've walked somewhere else and offered the chocolates to somebody else. It's the choice of the person who's being offered any gift, whether or not they receive it. Now you will know people who've made a decision up until this point in time to not receive or accept that gift that we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not God's fault when the next time they have to bow the knee or when they bow the knee if they're still in that place, one day he's going to be his judge as opposed to his saviour. So, we've got a choice. This is what God's word says. In John chapter 3, verse 18, just after the cosy John three sixteen that we like and quote and put on all our evangelistic tracks, this is a little bit more unpalatable and unsettling, but it's truth. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Yes. Shall we put a full stop there? Sadly, there's a but. But... Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? The answer is in the same verse. Because that person has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So that's the gospel in a nutshell. This is what we hold dear as a starting point in terms of our believing or maybe our coming into faith. Believing is not just a head thing. When God's word speaks of our believing, it is always in the active sense. So what is our response to that sense of believing? Well, we've got this book. We are so privileged as a people to be able to have umpteen translations. And you've probably got several Bibles at home, each of you, I dare say. Whereas elsewhere in the world, people have to travel miles to gather around one. And maybe then only part copies of one. We've got God's word. The psalmist says, guide me in your truth and teach me. The psalmist believed this word was God's living word. James is a little bit more brutal. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And I'll lastly end up pointing at me. So that's quite a challenge, isn't it? We say we believe this. 
The proof of the pudding is when God speaks through his word what we do about it. Or whether or not we'd rather get the tipex bottle out from time to time. We either accept all of it or none of it. This is all God's word. The word itself tells us that we didn't ought to add to it or take away from it. In its entirety, may it be that we believe and trust God's promises. We come to his word believing with the Holy Spirit's help and then aim to live out what it means to be a believer. We're going to pause uh, and pray. And then we've got this opportunity to come around what we call the Lord's table. It's actually our table, we could say. Not because it belongs at Dorchester Baptist Church, but because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. When he did this for the first time at that last supper and broke of the bread and drank of the cup. The bread that was symbolic of his body that was yet to be broken, shortly to be broken. And that cup, that glass of wine or goblet of wine that they had that was symbolic of his blood that was to be shed. Jesus said, for the forgiveness of sins. And then in terms of them sharing that one and to another around that table. As a community event and activity really, a special time. Now he said, you do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus is inviting us to his table. He's saying this is your table. For those who have, what? Who have believed who he is. Who've turned away from their wrongdoing. Who've accepted this Jesus as Lord. And are seeking with his help and grace to follow him. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing a song together. I'll tell you what it is shortly. And then we're going to have an opportunity to come to this table. It, not, it matters not how we do this. Different people come and join us for a, a Sunday evening, have different traditions about uh, how we actually, uh, how you practice this. Whether it's from one cup, one loaf, or um, uh, little cups that we've got here, and little pieces of bread that get passed round. We're going to come, symbolic of our sense of coming afresh to this Jesus, saying, I do believe. I do believe, that's why I'm going to come, Lord. Jesus may well not be here in the flesh. But in spirit we know that where his people are gathered, there he is in the midst. So it's an act of faith. It's a statement of our commitment to him. I'll mention about the practicalities of how we do that. Uh, We've got over 30 of us, so we don't need a queue of 30. Just when there's five or six, that'll do. And then if you'd rather spend some time on the front row, just pausing to reflect before going back to your seat that we can do that. David will be playing on the piano and there's a couple of songs that we're going to be singing over this time uh, of worship. But firstly, let's pray together. Firstly, with an opportunity to be still before our God. When Paul wrote, wrote to the church at Corinth, he was somewhat upset about the way that they did this. And he said, no, things are not right. I want you to examine your hearts before you take of the bread and drink from the cup. So with that same sense of quietness of spirit, let's be still before him and examine our own heart before I pray.
Father God, thank you that you love me. I'm here again to ask for your forgiveness for having made mistakes and not being the person that that I would have wanted to have been, let alone what you are desiring for me. Forgive those wrong thoughts. Forgive those things that I've not done that I could and maybe should have done. I believe the Lord Jesus died as punishment for what I've done wrong. So I celebrate that. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to go to that cruel cross for me. I thank you that you proved that you were God through your coming back from the dead. And therefore I say, praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are my risen saviour. Help me to follow you for I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.